By random chance, with no hints at all As to how we're supposed to make sense of it all It's immensely bizarre, here we are Hello everybody and welcome to the Here We Are podcast today I am in my hometown I'm talking with Associate Professor of Biology at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse He has a focus on animal behavior and entomology However... He is, most importantly, sure, uh, his main focus is Entomo, he's an Entomo artist? I'm Entomo re- artist, combination of study of insects and in an aesthetic light. Ooh, I was almost going to hit stop and re-record that one, but I like <laughs> that you set it up better. You did, a, you did a much better job. That is, you're already, you gave me this wonderful little tour of your labs um listeners i don't know if you can hear it or not there's bees buzzing around in the background pleasant hum of apis mellifera honeybee colonies both behind shane and in front of shane i'm surrounded by bees and uh i got all sorts of got this wonderful tour of just a, a ton of wonderful things got to see Beetles got to see insect fossils. Got to see a hippo skull. A hippo, <laughs> yeah, a hippo skull out of nowhere. Um, which it took me a while to figure out that it was a hippo. It looks like a dinosaur. Um, and yeah, just having having a great day here at EWL, um, which did not accept me. That's how. Uh, I would for, gladly accept you to my lab in the puparium. <laughs> That's where we are now, yes. the, puparium. the what, puparium. What's that? What's that mean? That's my puparium. lab's moniker, and it it refers to the pupil stage of a fly. So diptera, two winged insects, <laughs> and some of them go through this pupil stage where they have this puparium that surrounds their developing bodies. So, we're developing all kinds of ideas here in the puparium. Ah, I like it. Okay, metaphors are fun. <laughs> so, to, to start things off, we're going to do something a little silly. Um, because, and this isn't, this isn't directly related to any of your kind of main research or what you do. Although, although... Uh, science communication seems to be a, a pretty big part of of your interests. Science and, communication and cultural entomology. And cultural How entomology. How insects affect oh, humans and have across the world and throughout history. Th- yes. So, yeah, we're going to talk about that. This is, okay, I'm so excited. But first we're starting, so related to that, I have, I've never, as far as, Knowingly? I can remember. I've never knowingly eaten an insect. You have. (laughs) Many a time. (laughs) It's true. They find their way into a glass of orange juice, certain (laughs) parts per thousand. You know, there's people that listen to my podcast over breakfast and you just ruined (laughs) their whole day. (laughs) Now, there is a very serious side and an exciting side in the vein of sustainability 
Uh-huh. And sources of protein, yeah, in different parts of the world. Well, this is what I hear. I, I, have been hearing that like uh, uh, us Westerners are really missing out. Oh yeah. So if you think of the Western Hemisphere, what do we have? Well, traditionally in Oaxaca, Mexico, about 150 species of insects have been mm-hmm. consumed. Travel a little bit north to the United States, and unless you're thinking about Native American traditional consumption, like Tohono O'odham, eating these pseudo-migratory Hylis lineata moth larvae, pretty absent in modern-day U.S. That's Mm. changing. That's changing. And industrial entrepreneurs the world over are highlighting the value of eating invertebrates, especially for nutritive gain, protein content. I mean, think about it. If you if you rely on the flesh and muscle of a cow or a pig, give me a break. The inefficiency, we're talking about what 15 <laughs> to 20% protein dry animal mass. Go to a grasshopper, 45 plus percent. That is impressive. Yeah. Not to mention beef is uh is warming our earth. At, uh, stop eating beef. Stop eating beef, everybody. I've been, I mean, I've been considering stopping eating I mean, eating I sh- beef. I but shouldn't say that. We all draw beef. our own lines, yeah. and I don't want to be self righteous here. But thinking in terms, it, it's of a big contributor, yeah. And thinking in terms of the health of the planet, yeah. The numbers make it obvious, right? What pursuits humans can take to have lesser impact on our planet. Oh man! Well, now this is this oh, is no, less. Oh, but eat it. Of, Shane, no, no, that's fine. This is Don't this turn is back less now. of. No, I'm not turning back. <laughs> I'm saying like this is less of a silly like jackass gag <laughs> now, and more of like th- this is this is me, uh, you know, influencing uh, humanity in a right. positive uh, You're direction. Making so, a bold step here. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, With so small. Mastication steps, <laughs> small gustatory steps wow. mean huge leaps for humankind. Wow, that is very poetic and it's of you. Right this, here. this is it, there's going to be <laughs> 300 years from now. If if humanity survives, they oh. will have quotes like that. Like this, this is what steered the ship and, and on and put humans back on the right direction before they reached their their peak capacity and collapsed in on themselves they I'll figured out it. to eat bugs um so first off uh, so i'm gonna do and and by the way we can edit out whatever afterwards sure. if this ends up getting getting to be tedious i'm predicting this yeah. will be fun yeah um <laughs> so and i i and tasty and i want to try all of these things and report i have to say that i'm not um I, I don't have like a, a fine, sophisticated. <laughs> you won't uh, be talking about the body. No. The- <laughs> um, yeah, like a sommelier we, of insects. There we go. But I, so, what is this thing that I'm about? So to you're eat? looking at a major portion of a shorthorned grasshopper. So grasshoppers, okay. family Acridae, which we can find all over the place: grasslands, woods, leaf litter, etc. You know grasshoppers well. This one has been stripped of its segmented appendages and Mm -hmm. its antennae, but 
most of the body is there. And this well, would be prepared traditionally as chapulines in Mexican uh, dishes mm. and oftentimes marinated in uh, citrus. Okay, but salty. this is just like a straight up, this is the raw deal. Yeah. And then, right. and why aren't I eating the legs? Uh, you can, and oh, people okay. do, and we might. Oh, okay. That's just how this particular one was prepared <laughs> by a friend of mine. Okay. Um, so, looking at it, you know, I wouldn't say I'm scared or even nervous. It definitely feels unnatural to be looking at this thing and be putting it in my mouth. This is, you know, cultural Shame. conditioning and all of yes. that. Yes, let's talk about the arbitrary nature of food selection. Right. So, do you eat shrimp? I do, I do. Have eat you ever shrimp. eaten a lobster? I have. Have you ever eaten a crab? Yeah. So, all three of those are crustaceans. And insects, the most diverse specios <laughs> lineage of crustaceans. <laughs> In fact, their sister group is this blind centipede-like marine-dwelling remipede that nobody's heard of. But they're crustaceans. Just a special uh, well, Boy, do I feel foolish now. I'm, I'm popping so, this right in my mouth. Go for it. And you'll taste the chitinous exoskeleton, a polysaccharide with proteins. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, you really. I feel like you are trying to hypnotize well. me into liking this a, a little more than. Um, it's power suggestion. It's interesting. Okay. It's like um, an earthy um corn nut or something like you that. Are with a, like a, a little, a little bit That's good. more. Corn of nut. A, a lot of people uh, talk about. Crickets, especially, is tasting nutty. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it definitely tastes a little more. It's it's like a corn nut that I picked out of the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> but, Funny you should mention that because in the book "Man Eating Bugs," in which a pair travels the earth trying different traditional food dishes comprised of insects, mm -hmm. they ate the uh, fungus cordyceps bursting out of a caterpillar mm. in the form of a soup and they described it undramatically as tasting like dirt hmm. yeah well, well let's, let's go for the big guns do you want to try the yeah i want to try peanuts. everything you should try the okay peanuts. so what did i just uh, that was a grasshopper this is the larva of a beetle and it's a kind of tenebriana dark and there's beetle. one in here that you don't like right yeah i'm should not going to warn you you're not going to warn me no. okay no. <laughs> that's smart I, do, I, do, I don't want to uh <laughs> okay what is this your... again now that is a darkling beetle larva <sighs> yeah that, i mean okay it's, it's related to what we'd typically call a mealworm that you'd feed yeah. lizards and amphibians yeah i mean if this thing was crawling on me i would be unsettled by it but um now i'm gonna put it in my mouth and it's gonna kind of crawl right down that's right and now these have been professionally prepared. What do you mean professionally prepared? Meaning that you don't, for a lot of reasons, I wouldn't grab any old insect and throw it in your mouth mm -hmm. and swallow. Some are chemically defended. And oftentimes you can tell because they'll be warning colored, like a monarch butterfly, bright orange, black, white. As a larva, as an adult, they have these striking high contrast colors. So you notice them. 
they're not camouflaged like a lot of other organisms. Why? They're advertising their unpalatability. Right. And so you take one bite, like a naive blue jay in the textbook example, vomit. It's a one-time learning event. You know to avoid <laughs> orange, black, and white well, forever. But then don't other insects mimic that? Yeah. Yes. So you have mimic model complexes where mimics sometimes are quite palatable, edible, mm. look like and confer benefits from looking like aposematic warning, hazardous, toxic Without models. having to evolve those That's costly right. toxins. Exactly. They don't need to sequester the toxins, for example. Mm. While other mimics can look a lot like their models, but also be toxic. So hmm. if you share this gestalt, this look, this overall look of, yeah. say, yellow, black bands, you might be a wasp, you might be a bee. And if a bird or a reptile or something eats one of them, they may know to avoid anything that looks remotely like that. <laughs> right. Um, all right. So, oh, now you're about so, to... so I, yeah. you know, I guess I just... I'm not sure I have an opinion on the last thing that I ate. I think I was, uh, I think I was just like fine with it. And that's why mealworm larvae are typically used when pulverized, dried, pulverized as f portions of flour in a bread. Yeah. And other things. Yes, I so can see that. It's it, not. It can sneak surreptitiously into dishes mm. and be effective. Hmm. Um, now, what's this thing? Bombyx mori. It's Ooh. the silkworm moth in the form of its pupil stage, <laughs> traditionally consumed in Korea and elsewhere. Sometimes it's canned. I've got cans over in the cabinet over there. Ooh. In this case, it was uh, dried and ready for consumption. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. um, um, I mean... I guess it's a little like a cracker or something in a way. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's like a puff, a puffy kind of a thing. You're more generous than I am. Yeah, Bombix Mori is not so tasty to my palate. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I say I'm. I, I'm not like thrilled about it <laughs> for sure. And I'm also like, my stomach is a, a little like, hey, this is a foreign substance. Should we be doing? <laughs> Like when, this. Once I was in a Korean restaurant just outside of Chicago, and I ordered insect, what they called poopy, insect poopy, but they couldn't tell me what species it was. And I could tell from across the restaurant what species it was as this <laughs> big pile of Bombyx mori pupae came toward my table. Mm. Oh, yeah, you can smell it from a distance. Um, I, uh, how... Uh, uh, is it easy to get insect food in the U.S. if you're if you're searching for it? I, I mean, so far my reviews. I'm sure all my listeners are like, <laughs> "You've lost." I gotta <laughs> get my mouth around some insects. You can actually. There are a number of companies, and it's a growing trend uh, where companies are producing insect food, like this one in front of you. The chirps eat bugs, chips. Okay, I, I feel like I need. I'm gonna do a chip because I have a. I have a sense that like this manufactured product is going to be a, a hair more palatable. And yeah, than that. Maybe that'll kind of just yeah. get me ready. Yeah. Um. Okay. Innocuous, right? It's yeah. I can handle that. This <laughs> is um, a chirps 
Eat bugs. Sriracha cricket chips. Try the jungle bar. Five grams of protein per bag. Insect powered, cricket powdered okay. jungle bar. This is part of a Kickstarter program from Europe. Mm. And um, in this case, this is, again, an example where there's so many ingredients in there, and some of them are powerful that you won't taste a cricket powder. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, I think because I'm not tasting anything <laughs> right. else. other, I'm tasting the chocolate and cranberry. Boy, then it's time to go back to more of a hardcore insect, and that's yeah. a species of ant. And these are usually used as well, toppings, garnish. I'll tell you, no reason not to eat a jungle bar. That is, I eat lots and lots of power bar type things, lar bars a lot. Uh, I like the epic bars mm -hmm. out there. This is uh, as good of a bar as, as I've ever had. So, And now it's, it's worth mentioning, I think, that insects are sentient thinking organisms. And so if you have moral qualms about eating animals, period, well, insects are the most diverse lineage of animals. Hmm. So some may be hesitant and for personal reasons, and that's perfectly fine to avoid consuming insects, just as you might be uh, personally averse to consuming um, a non-human primate. Hmm. Right. Hmm. Well. Ants. Ants number... Am I? What am I doing here? Am I taking like a pinch of this stuff? Yeah, a little stuff? pinch, little pinch. Just a pinch of ants. Little pinch. And let me tell you a story as you pinch those ants. <laughs> when I used to live in Tucson, Arizona, I had a jar of honey on my. Oh, reaction. Tucson has a lot of good oh, yeah. insects going on. It's true. It's true. That's why I moved there. Um, what do you think of the ants? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, so far the ants are my favorite. Yeah, same here. It's almost like a boy. It almost has like a sweet, almost like a dried fruit, but crunchy sort of quality to. Uh, I could eat ants and lemony, right? Lemony. Yes, yeah. is that? Yeah, it's like a tangy yeah. kind of a zesty. Let me give you a, hmm. a tail. Okay, of I can Dola eat ants. Kedorani. That's what I've that's what I've learned. I okay. can definitely eat these. Now ants. keep in mind there are over fourteen, maybe fourteen to twenty thousand species described of ants on the planet, hmm. and each ant might taste different. You can smell a lemony ant. You can smell. Well, I don't want to spoil it. Tucson, Arizona. Picture me leaving a honey jar, lid I thought tightly secured head back after some classes, <laughs> and I see this line of tiny ants going up, around the lid, through and in, and dropping dead on the surface of the honey. Enough survive that they could recruit additional ants to continue consuming that honey. Well, I open it up, didn't want to waste the honey, and I was curious, so I spread it over some bread, and chomp, surprise, <laughs> shock, intrigue it tasted just like blue cheese what and so i thought wait is it honey gone bad so i tried just the honey nope good honey bread nope perfectly fine ants alone wow ends up they were in the subfamily <laughs> dolica dorini that tastes like blue cheese huh yeah the fungus that invades the cheese well okay i like that i mean that could be i'll take that over like um you know, you, you go to like a really nice restaurant 
and they have, and this might be, it's kind of a cliche. I'm not the first person to make this observation, but you go to a nice restaurant, they bring the bread out. I'm not even a big bread person. I'd rather you just don't bring bread at all rather than make this fatal mistake. You bring out the the refrigerated, uh, like in the packet, mm-hmm. butter. Yeah, I'm a, like it's a fifty dollars steak, but I'm getting little butter packets right. instead of the whipped. No, no. throw some ants in there. Exactly. Instead, yeah, spread and that, the ants in. Now you, and now it's like this fine dining. You are eccentric experience. You are describing a banquet that was led by Joseph Yoon, famous chef based in Brooklyn, New York, Brooklyn Bugs in Madison, mm. Wisconsin, a month or so ago, in which the whole focus was sustainability and entomophagy, the eating of insects. Hmm. And he, by the way, supplied me with many of these insects in front of you. Well, this is like, a you know, I always have like a bag of, of uh, beef jerky or something like that. In, and, you know, I'm as I'm I have a. I'm complicit in destroying the earth with all my, with all my beef jerky. I could have a bag of ants right. next and just be gobbling ants <laughs> in the car. Um, well, a, a traditional practice of eating the queens, large ants of leaf cutters, atine ants in Colombia and elsewhere. Um, it's like popcorn. Hmm. And termites oh. in Africa. Heavy in lipids, calorically valuable. Hmm. Okay, I got one more to go. And now, I mean, I might have to go back to those ants if this doesn't go my Uh, way. Looks like you're Um, reaching in for family grillity, a grillus cricket. Hmm. Or Akita, actually. I'm going to throw two in there. I'm going to take a real chance. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Um. And that will be, along with mealworms, the most commonly consumed mm-hmm. insect, typically, mm. and grasshoppers. It's a different flavor. I've it's got a one. Different for you. kind of flavor. I've got one. For oh, you. I have one more thing to yeah, go. Yeah, you have one more thing, oh, and it comes fun. from my backyard. My bees. So oh, feel free to wonderful. try some comb honey if you like. Oh, I would love some comb so, honey. Straight out of the wax that they extrude as flakes on the undersides of their abdomens when they need to build their bees. I'm not sure I've ever actually had honey in a comb before. I just grab it and gobble it. And... Yeah, grab and gobble. My son Riven loves to. Mm. Yeah, that is a nice. Yeah, after you've just experimented with a new insect diet that's a nice way to finish things yeah and picture that bite you took that was thousands of visits by forager honeybees collecting nectar to produce not only the honey but the wax well thank you honeybees yes um and i just swallow the wax it's not yeah. like built R- up in rich my with mouth. vitamin a oh okay yeah. vitamin a not not doesn't get a lot of great press, <laughs> no, vitamin A. Um, and yet it's the first in the alphabet. Okay. You have to give it due respect. Um, well, all right. This is fantastic. <laughs> Do you now, now, when you said they were in cans, too, because this is, is there like a big difference between like the dried version or, or when they're, when they're like nice and Gah. juicier? Do you? Yeah. It, it, the I imagine canned Bombix Mori, which I have right over there. Yuck. No. Yeah, no, avoid. Avoid. I would recommend avoiding. Okay. But other things like I've got jars and bottles of different uh, mm. edibles and those are those are great. Now, what are you what are you getting into 
um, around the house. Are you actually ever dipping into anything? So I tend to uh, avoid killing insects to consume them, but I definitely partake of entomophagy events out of respect for sustainability, the intrigue of cultural entomology, etc. Mm-hmm. And hey, I... Uh, I will opportunistically consume insects and certainly insect exudates, what they spit up, for example, and honey and wax. Hmm. So around my house, you'll have a lot, just ask my wife Dasha and my four-year-old son Riven, insects everywhere. And that will include references to entomophagy and edibles. (laughs) Oh, I believe it. (laughs) By the way, listeners, I'll I'll make sure I'm... And put some pictures on Instagram. There's a whole, just everything is insects. But I, I've never seen anyone so upset. There is, is speaking of Tucson, I had um, um, Schmidt. Um, Justin Schmidt. Justin Schmidt on the, on the of podcast. Of the famous Justin Schmidt Hymenopteran Pain Index Scale. Uh, yes, the very Apis famous. Apis mellifera honeybees rank number two. And then you just go up to the bullet ant. Yeah. And the Pepsis wasp, tarantula hawk wasp. Yeah, yeah. I think the tarantula hawk wasp, I tried to get stung by oh, that's on the one podcast. To avoid. Oh, that's one to avoid. And it didn't, it wouldn't do it. Good. It wouldn't sting me. Count yourself lucky. Yeah. So they have a potent <laughs> well, cocktail. I got stung with a two, and I was like, that just wasn't doing it oh. for me enough. So you need and I was a, like, can a, you give me a three? And a he didn't fix. have any threes there. Oh. And then he's like, but I do have, like, the most painful <laughs> thing in the world. And I'm like, God, oh, I am an idiot who likes attention. So I guess I'll try to get stung by this thing. And it just, I, I kept on having other defense mechanisms, yeah, like, buzzing around and making all sorts of noises and stuff like that to scare you so that it wouldn't need to use its toxin. Yeah, a lot of insects will engage in stridulation where they'll rub one body part against another, like crickets with their wings. So, mm-hmm. And the rate at which, for example, crickets stridulate can inform you what the temperature is because mm. they stridulate at the rate relative to the uh, ambient temperature. Mm. So the stridulation can take many forms. And even the bullet ant, if you are careful, and you hold a bullet ant, Peripona clavata, close to your ear, then you'll hear a it's rubbing two body parts together. You'll see the head move back and forth. Hmm. Yeah, and some had... longhorn beetles. What was the wheezy beetle or something like that? Hmm. What is the... No, no, you showed me it. The what? What's the thing that made the weird noise you put it in my hand? Um, oh, it was right at the beginning hand. of our tour. Oh, well, not the, a beetle, Madagascar hissing cockroach. Oh, the uh-huh. the hissing, so the or- hissing, not wheezing. That's right, cockroach, yeah. not beetle. And basically, it has just as all adult insects do, paired holes, spiracles along the body, thorax, and abdomen to breathe, so they can actively or passively breathe. And in the case of this, so Madagascar, no insects, they're not breathing through their mouths. Nope. I mean, some oxygenated well, air don't will go it. through the oral cavity, but they have a totally different respiratory system hmm. that takes the form of these holes that they can control, open and close, these spiracles that lead to trachea and then fine tracheoles that can literally reach every body cell directly, with some exceptions. Hmm. So instead of transporting oxygenated air through a circulatory system as we have, they have this network 
There was an entomologist, an American entomologist, who said, you haven't lived until you've seen the tracheal system of an American cockroach. And it's amazing, because if you look at it, it's a silvery, glistening network of tubes, finer and finer and finer, that deliver oxygenated air to body cells, because all of our cells need oxygen. Hmm. Yeah, so I, I'm just remembering what oh, I was so going to tell people. Oh, so the Madagascar hissing cockroach can close up its spiracles except for a pair, contracts muscles, and hmm. And that's, as you mentioned, that's one defense when they don't have, say, a chemical defense. They don't have a modified egg-laying device, which is a stinger. Mm-hmm. Then maybe they can hiss. Yeah, only females have the stinger. That's right. I love that. That's well so done. interesting. That's right. Um, yeah, man, this is it's so. Um, so just just so everyone knows, just so just to paint the full picture for everybody, Barrett has you walk in. He um, is just loves insects more. He's trying to feed you insects. He's wearing insect clothes that he made himself. He has he has pictures of insects. You're drawing insects. You're a fantastic artist, Why, by thank the way. You. Like I appreciate what that. The, I mean, although you did sorry, not I'm, like to I look had, in my notebooks. Well, no, that was <laughs> it. Was too impressive. It made me feel bad about myself. Um, Whatever works. Well, Barrett was like, "Here's my notebooks where I just like." journal like my little notes and stuff just little (laughs) ideas that i have and i was like oh okay i'll look at that one i would never give my journal to someone to read because i (laughs) could go to jail (laughs) and then uh or a psych ward certainly (laughs) but uh but like mine i like think of a couple ideas i scribble them down and it's just this disorganized i look in your journal and there's just this beautiful out outline of like this easy to read well kudos to you to keep that notebook and uh readers take note actually literally take note because notebooks can be really valuable for keeping ideas Mm -hmm. that you might otherwise forget inspiration poetry art for me it's a mix of things including science I was telling Shane earlier that I ran an experiment one summer and I needed to replicate it. If I didn't have sketches and notes in sufficient detail, wow, replicating that would have been a tragedy. Yeah, well, there's, maybe that's why there's such a replication crisis going on right now. Yeah, good point. Um, and then you got like comic books out. I mean, this is your life. This is, you got, so you're, I got Ant-Man over there. I imagine you're just <laughs> into the Ant-Man Oh movies. yeah, you must be so excited. I haven't seen the second one yet. Well, it's it's fun because one thing I like to do sometimes with a group is to watch an insect themed media event and then analyze it. Mm-hmm. Think about what was fantastic, what was incredible, as in not credible, mm-hmm. and what was actually based in facts. Mm-hmm. And it can be this beautiful woven mix that can be inspirational because sometimes we underestimate the powers and abilities of organisms around us. Mm. And so something like like you chose Ant-Man or maybe Spider-Man or something like that, you look at an arthropod-themed superhero or villain, and sometimes the creators of those characters or the writers of the characters fall short of the grand potential that exists with the actual organisms. Hmm. So, Give us, for instance. Well, for example, if we were to think about 
well, na- can you name an? Insect? I mean, I mean, do do uh, do real spiders kiss upside down? In- <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? That's an excellent question. Let's think about. Well, we could think about courtship and copulation in spiders, which is fantastic. Way, is, is fascinating and very different than the upside down ki- magical kiss. It but really is. If we think about webs. So Spider-Man, traditionally, thanks to Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, produces mm. a range of spiderwebs. And this is this is really Peter Parker as an an inventive scientist in high school pulling together, it seemed like in a night, this amazing uh, web-wielding arm uh, equipment where he pulls two fingers together, shoots the web, and then if you think of the movies, it's a different scene reinterpreted as this is part no, of his he's biology. He's not taking any notes in a journal. He's <laughs> not... <laughs> he just naturally right. is capable of shooting web work from his wrists. Right? Right. So very different interpretations. But either way, the webbing is limited. So maybe you have steel cable hard uh, webs that you shoot out to entrap someone. Maybe you have gloopy, gloppy, sticky web. But... Spiders, depending on the species, have such an amazing array of silks they can produce. Even in, like, for example, an orb weaver web, aspects of it can be very hard with great tensile strength. Other parts of it can be super sticky. So they can fabricate webs, if they're producing webs to begin with, made of a variety of properties. Hmm. Why not make your spider suit out of your webbing? Why not use that material? Wow, that's a great question. I wonder if it has to do with breathability and flexibility, but I'd wear a webwork suit. Uh, yeah. I definitely yes, wear a silken would. suit. I know you would. <laughs> <laughs> I know that about you. We've known each other for an hour now. I definitely know you, you would wear that. And, and actually, so would I. When I get my silk tunic back you're welcome to wear that oh too. i can borrow your silk tunic that you, tunic with that anatomically you accurate venation in the silk wings oh, yeah, this wow. is all produced by a wonderful student of mine huh yeah this is your you're mixing with other insect artists out there i'm sorry Entomo artists. Entomo artists, that's right. Entomology inspired artists. Wow. Yeah. This is a, and my mother Karen Klein is a great one. Hmm. So how did you uh man, they, I have a few different paths we can go. But go uh, down all of them at once. All of no, them pick at once. Number three. Uh work geez. backwards. I, I have two paths. Okay, two paths. Start um, with two. Okay. So I have here's my two paths. Okay. One I was curious your favorite. I'll just do chronologically of how they popped into my head. Yeah, yeah. Um, favorite spider courtship. I'll say mine first. Okay. Because I imagine you're going to blow mine out of the water. No telling. They're um, all fascinating. The It's something... Some Australian red-backed red spider. Backed spider. Uh-huh. Yeah, you picked a winner. That's a good one, huh? You picked a winner. Yeah. Elaborate. Well, it's my understanding that the male's much smaller than the female. True. Does a little dance to gain favor, and then she's like, "Okay," and so she, and so he, 
he um, you know goes to town with one of his sides. One, I think he has pedipalp. That's right. That stores the sperm. Yeah, and then um, while she's like eating him a little bit, and then she kind of like lets him go, and he's like sort of somewhat eaten already and now he has to like dance again and do another impressive dance now half eaten to then use the other side when is it something like that yeah it's close to that when copulation leads to cannibalism and it's a rare situation we think of the black widow and this uh-huh. is not a distant relative of that a praying mantis sometimes yeah, sometimes correct in this case the redback spider male will do a backflip into the waiting, gaping mouth parts of the female. Yeah. Say the pedipalps and the chalicery of the female, and she eats him alive. And so the romantic, remarkable, though. The, <laughs> the sacrifice. <laughs> the, you're going to get a, a new listenership, right? <laughs> so the, the benefits, if we're thinking about from the you know the dubious benefits from the male perspective being consumed alive he's not able to mate again right is that the longer she takes to mate with him the more sperm will fertilize her eggs mm. so if she's taking time consuming his body just as with a praying mantis more time left for sperm to fertilize her eggs so in from a genetic legacy standpoint yeah i mean how can you do any better than that redback spider male? Right, you can't. From a, now, from an individual standpoint, yeah, hoofda. There's yeah. other ways mm. to go I, if, I agree. if you're caring about your own individual well-being. I, I agree. Um, but that's evolution, yeah, um, for us, and we're all feeding ourselves to something in one way or another uh, to spread True. our genes forward. Now, you asked for mine. The redback spider is a winner, but there's so many great examples. I'll I'll pick one that a uh, friend and colleague Todd Bukowski first told me about, and that, that involves a spider which basically inserts one pedipalp, pedipalp in the female and explodes. So he dies oh, in the pursuit. Hun- honeybee? Male? Oh, no, no. This is a, a spider species. Oh, spider. Now, now, glad you brought me to the honeybee because that is a similar scenario where the right. male, it's a one-time mating event if the drone male is successful in competing against other males mm-hmm. to achieve the mating position with a female. And then, yes, he everts his abdomen in the form of this ediagus, this penis analog, and he bleeds to death. Or you'd say... Hemolymphs to death. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> it's both tragic, uh, heroic. Um, it's not a martyrdom because, again, it comes down to his genetic legacy and advancing it. Huh. Well, I, I have now named my member my penis analog. By, <laughs> by the, the way, I'm in the by by investigating entomology, you learn more about yourself. You really do. Okay, so the the spider. Yeah, uh, and that's that, it. That you it, haven't you haven't named yet, though. No, did you? The spider? actually, at the time I learned about this, he didn't reveal the spider's name to me. So, so this is just a out. mystery spider. It's a mystery. Well, mystery to me. I'll have to find out what his name is. But it looms large in the back of my brain. <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> that is crazy to me that you don't have this piece of information I will readily find it. accessible to you. I will find you. it. I'll make it available to you. As long as it's been published, it's, I'll make it available. It's, it's fine. So then my second question, mm. um, that uh, this and I was torn between these two. They're, bo- they're both uh, very interesting. How did you get interested in... In this stuff, on such a, I mean, your enthusiasm is contagious. I imagine you are just a driven, I mean, you're drawing things, you're taking notes, you're studying, you're giving tours, you're doing public outreach. You love bugs. I do. I do love insects. And it, now it's, it's like a whole family thing. Yeah, it sure is. So, uh, so let's give us, the, what's the origin rewind, story back in time. of the... Of the real um, bug man. You're, you're my superhero. All right. Yeah. I recall when I was five years old having this nebulous epiphany. <laughs> so I collected this dead butterfly in a driveway in Pleasant Ridge, just outside of Detroit, Michigan, <laughs> wow. where my parents, artists, and owners of an art gallery for 40 years uh-huh. and my identical twin brother arno klein you have my, an identical yes you are yeah. such a superhero you should, you should definitely this be is interviewing like another, him instead of me what's he up to well he images brains he does smart clothing he looks at medical apps on phones he is the head of a neuroscience division at the Child Mind Institute in Manhattan, New York. Wow. You guys got the same like disposition and everything? Same stuff. Uh, well, going on? I'd say he has a loud, annoying laugh. Other than that, he's. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, my sister, Corinthia Klein, uh-huh. Luthier in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Corinthian violins. And there are cultural entomology co- connections everywhere. She uses cochineal bugs in the varnish on her violins and violas. Hmm. But going back to this nebulous epiphany, I knew that insects somehow, in some unknown fashion, would serve at the core of my very existence at five. <laughs> I was on the porch and the swirling images and thoughts in my mind. Wow. And I was aesthetically driven. I was compelled. I mean, if you live just outside of Detroit, then you're not surrounded by nature in the way that others are really benefit from. It. Yeah. And so... What was really accessible to me? Insects. They're everywhere. Huh. And the range of behaviors, shapes, forms, colors is marvelous, endlessly fulfilling and intriguing. Wow. And so you I just would got explore. bit by the bug bug. Yeah, literally. Yeah, you know it. <laughs> you know it. And so uh, I knew insects would play a role. And then later on, when I was deciding on what course to take in college, I was deciding between art major, filmmaker, and entomology. And I decided to go the entomology route and just take art courses and filmmaking courses hmm. and combine the the myriad. Well, I think it's all pieced together quite well. What do you think about the, um, what do you think about the, you know, our planet or planet Earth life, those, uh, how, how they're, you watch those and, and see their little insect setups are, 
are you blown away or are you, are you like, oh, they did that uh, behind like a green screen? Because sometimes they do set up like the fake things to capture the, the shots. Do you have like a real keen eye for that yeah, kind of stuff? I think if you have a trained eye for anything, mm-hmm. you'll have that mixed response. Mm-hmm. If something is done really well, then you can be blown away by it, but then be cognizant of the artifice, right? Mm-hmm. You can peek behind the curtain and know how it was produced. And sometimes that's really exciting. I spent uh, several years making natural history displays for museums at Chase Studio in Missouri and then at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And that's a world of fabulous artifice when you're building a diorama or making enlarged models of insects or viruses, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So there, just like watching Ray Harryhausen's classic stop motion animation, you know, characters that are moving, you know those are fake, but wow, are they amazing, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in the case of some of those you listed, they do such an exquisite, seamless job that you can be taken for a ride, Yeah, right? You can suspend your disbelief in yeah. terms of the machinations behind producing them and really enjoy the story. And that's what it's about. We're, we're yes, by and large, visually oriented organisms, but we're also driven by stories and storytelling. And if you can tell a good story, that's how your message can be conveyed effectively. And in that case, they tell they oftentimes tell beautiful stories. And so visually and sometimes through narration. And so I I'm definitely taken away. And I oftentimes learn a lot when I'm watching those. Sometimes, yes, I'll I'll find little gaps and maybe little um errors. You ever write Attenborough and just give him give him a little what for? Wow, I would love to meet that gentleman. <laughs> I, yes. I respect He's a magical that man. being. Yeah. Everyone to does. It. I yeah. mean, who doesn't like Attenborough? And talk about outreach. He's yeah. talking about the diversity on the planet and how we're losing it. He's talking about the biomes, the ecosystems that are facing trouble at humans' hands. And kudos to him to be at the forefront of these wonderful outreach, educational, and entertaining. It's the key is not only to educate, but to inspire. Mm-hmm. And when you can do both of those, especially in a story format, fantastic. So I am once again, just torn. I mean, this is, we're now at 47 minutes. This time's just flown right by. I mean, I don't, I know you blocked a bunch of time off for me today. We can maybe make things a little longer if you're not in a big yeah. rush to get out of here or whatever. I'm having a I blast. I just feel like and we I have, have questions so much to talk. You have questions yeah. for me? This Would you is like the first so one? much fun. Sure. Okay. My first question for you is, and it has to do with your profession and actually your dual profession. Just, I mean, you're an outreach educator for science. You're a comedian. Yeah. You're a storyteller. And this is an exciting blend. <laughs> and I and I'd love to know from a cultural entomology perspective, yeah. have you ever ventured into storytelling or joke telling involving insects? Insects, um, you know, I have a joke about honeybees. Oh. Um, and I have I you know, I've done a fair amount of mating behavior stuff and so It's a rich material. Oh, insect mating behavior is fantastic. I have you ever seen green porn by uh Rossellini? No. A series of little uh, vignettes that are based in natural history, looking mm. at animal courtship and mating. Hmm. And it and includes 
the catastrophic mating of Apis mellifera honeybees. Hmm. Isabella Rossellini. I am going to look into that for sure. I once read a book that you're maybe the only other person besides myself who's <laughs> maybe read this book. It's called Female Control, I believe. Oh. And, and then this what is was by... the subtitle? It was all about female insects, naughty parts. Oh. And it was like 500 pages of just dance for me at least for me it was fairly dense um you know walk it do you have you have it like in an arm's length you're looking around for it it's it's like a it doesn't look like much on the outside you know what i'm talking about it's like cryptic female choice or something like that that is definitely fascinating territory. Yeah, and, uh, it was rich, uh, not years just in and years arthropods, ago. but in vertebrates as well. Yeah. The cryptic choice made by females. Yeah. And actually, I was thinking about a different book that's related to the same topics by Marlene Zook, who's writing oh, the I've University had, of I've had Marlene on, on the podcast. Oh, really? Yeah. I want to hear that one. She's wonderful. talked about her book, Paleo Fantasy, Great. I think. And, and I, I've always been hoping to get back. And I see you have Sex on Six Legs. That's it there That's i've been it. i've been meaning to read that and get back uh with her it's Hasn't, a singer uh, it's hopefully a long life and there will be opportunities for that in the future but yeah she's right nearby yeah yeah so um i no i was i was as i was looking at all of your all of your insect art i was like oh, i wonder if there's collaboration ideas mm. that we can do or something i would but, love that um, but yeah, we'll we'll see. This I'm would be always you, you got a lot of interesting stuff going on. So the answer is yes. I I've I've done a little bit. I haven't like told any personal stories about my relationships with insects. Um, but uh, I I've read interesting things about them. I I like insects a lot, and I hope to write more material in the future. I don't. I I just have too many. I my journals are just filled like one day i'll be like i'm going to write a whole show about insects and then i'll start writing that and then uh you know the next day i have another ah, idea an embarrassment and of riches so, yes That's i great. i do i i have i have no lack of i i have an abundance of never-ending ideas I'm, I'm more i'm more of the um generating ideas than i am the follow-through type of <laughs> type of person which i'm i'm trying to but you're obviously following through that. in many ways i, I am super prolific uh trying to but um all right back to that so that was you got one question for me you're you're welcome to ask more Good. i will potentially get embarrassed at some point i'm gonna feel like i'm talking about myself too much because this uh, this podcast is all about you and science oh, okay um, so we should actually talk about science um maybe science? well i have three topics that i'm okay. so okay. i'm gonna go in order of what i think would be um least to most um i don't even i don't want to say interesting i just think that maybe unique to what you do okay considering that i'll have you know this won't be my last insect podcast that i Ta -ta. ever do on the show and everything so so my my three things one you brought up um you brought up the impact of of climate and habitat destruction and um environmental influences 
always important for people to hear about. You're welcome to touch on that as much as you want. Um, and then the second thing I'm definitely really interested in um, the cultural entomology mm. of insects. Yeah. It, so much so that I'm like, do we just have a second podcast? Let's you do and it. I sometime in the future or something like that. Sign me up. Maybe we could do that. Um, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm having a lovely time. I think the number one thing yeah. that I would like to talk about and considering that we have, you know, a somewhat of a limited ish time, but not yeah. really. I want to hear about sleep patterns. I think Let's I'm just do. the most interested about the sleep sure. patterns, if that's okay with yeah. you. Because um, the thing is, is you you don't really think about insects sleeping. They, you know, they don't have eyelids that I know of. Do, are there any insects out there that can close their eyes? None. So what do you? They what have do you these even exposed omatidia? These lenses. Sometimes one, sometimes thousands, but there is no lid. Sometimes only one? Sometimes you have you even have blind insects that are chemically oriented and driven. Like some ants, right? Yeah, some army ants, for example. It, there's a there's some ant oh what is like the Martialis Eureka, the ant from <laughs> Mars that Christian Robling discovered and described that paved the way to understanding the relationships, the deep relationships of all the subfamilies of ants. And this ant from Mars is blind, burrowing, and only one specimen exists in any collection on planet Earth. Really? Yeah. Why, why do they call it the ant from Mars? Well, the story goes. <laughs> Christian Robling was in Manaus, Brazil. And as he is wont to do, he was searching for ants galore. And... One little three millimeter long ant in the leaf litter bumped into his shoe. He reached down, grabbed it, and <laughs> because he's not a behavioral bi biologist as much as he is a, a systematist, someone who looks at evolutionary relationships, he threw that sad little ant <laughs> into a vial of ethanol. So he threw, threw it in his pocket and he knew immediately, and Christian Robling, being Christian Robling, knew that this was unlike any other ant on the planet. And it took a while, but he pulled it out of that pocket eventually. Had a See, I would have never, never pulled it out. <laughs> would have been like, oh, this is interesting. Collect that. <laughs> it's just in the pile of all of my other collections. Well, thankfully, of he did pull it out because even though it's, you know, it's an unusual ant, he would have never guessed at the outcome from the research collected from three legs, pulled off that ant, ground up, and then sequenced for their DNA, he ultimately found out that that ant is essentially the sister to all other subfamily of ants. And because of the vagaries of phylogenetics and long branch attraction, sometimes it's difficult to know how the deep roots of evolution pan out in terms of present-day relatedness of organisms. Sometimes it's difficult. And so, even recently, there was some debate as to whether or not sponges are the sister group to all other animals, or are cnidarians, like jellyfish and corals and others. And someone proposed that cnidaria are, which was weird because they've got nerves, they've got neurons, and, and sponges don't. Well, I think that's been solved, and sponges are back 
sharing this uh, this grand place as the sister to all other phyla of animals. Well, mm. likewise, it's difficult sometimes to solve these problems. Well, Christian Rappling and and et al. Uh, figured out that this ant is likely the sister to all the other subfamilies of ants, and this is just from one specimen. Well, when he showed it to uh, Grandmaster of Ants, Edward Osborne Wilson, E.O. Wilson, um, author of a shelf full of books, including sure. the classic sociobiology, the new synthesis, to biophilia, to the ants, Pulitzer Prize winner, and on human nature, Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, he looked at that ant and he said it was so strange that it looks like it must be from Mars. Hence, Martialis is the genus name and the epithet Eureka. <laughs> so it was a really, it was a really great discovery because you know you figure it's a three millimeter long ant. In the grand scheme of things, what could it tell you? And it could tell you a lot. So the grand unknowns in nature, and you don't have to be in a rich, humid, tropical rainforest that's, you know, famously and appropriately known to be super biodiverse. You can be in a desert. You can be in a parking lot. You can be in a parking garage and discover new species. Uh, yeah, when you're a bug guy, it's like, I, I feel like people might not trust you. I feel, I feel like you got like some crawly things in your pocket that, you're, <laughs> that you could throw at anyone at any moment. Um, so you're talking about how, how you can kind of take interest in life anywhere. You can go to some uh, parking lot and some fast food place where you're not ex expecting to find a lot of nature and science right. and you look down on the little crack in the and that's in the ground and there's a there's beauty a to being say a microbiologist mm -hmm. if you're interested in say fungi or bacteria or in my case i love all of them but insects because they're so accessible and you can look anywhere and find something new whether it be a new species or new behavior or new physiological interaction mm. it's not so long ago that people discovered that lichens are not just a pairing of something that photosynthesizes, like a cyanobacterium and an, or an alga with a fungus, but hey, there's at least one other fungal player there. I mean, this was a just a discovery I, by a student. I don't, I'm not totally sure about oh. any of the things that just came out oh, of your hold mouth. Hold on, I'll, I'll, so I'll, I, I, I wouldn't assume that the listener <laughs> Let me necessarily clarify. know as well. So if you're walking along and you see on a tree or on a rock, these crusty orange or red or green or whitish green um, things. You might think that's a moss or that's a plant. And if you look carefully, sometimes it's neither. It's a lichen. And a lichen is this symbiosis, a living together, a pairing, an obligate, mandatory pairing of a plant and a fungus to simplify it, but it need not just be a plant. It could be this alga kind of plant or a bacterium that makes its own food, a cyanobacterium. And when you make your own food, who makes his own food? Well, photosynthetic organisms like land plants make their own food. They're green because of the chlorophyll, light absorbing pigment molecules that can grab car carbon from thin air, CO2. They can grab that carbon and then build chains and ladders and build themselves, make sugars. So that's why autotrophs, organisms that feed themselves, photosynthetic organisms like land plants, 
are so amazing. I wish I had green hair, right? <laughs> if I had chlorophyll-laden hair, I could eat on the run. You know, eat anywhere as long as sure. I got sunlight. I mean, who, who hasn't yeah. thought about that? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So picture this lichen that where you have this odd relationship and people debate about it. Is it is one entrapping the other? Are they mutually beneficial, this relationship? Anyway, you've got this pairing. Well, only recently a student discovered, hey, there's another fungus involved. And that's a major discovery that gives us new insights as how as to how the world operates. Mm. Um, okay, so to get us back to sleeping, one thing, as you're talking about blind ants, I've Someone sent me a video recently of some ants in somewhere in South America. I want to say that 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 end up in these like death spirals. Oh, be, yeah. Because they uh, they're That's going right. they're going by Fairmount Trail or something right. like that, and, the de- the and famous one death like spiral. takes a wrong turn or something like the wrong guy takes the wrong turn, and so everyone. Francis starts- Ratniks did early work like on Barrow, Colorado Island, looking at army ants. This is in Panama. And he'd find that, well, you know, these chemically driven organisms that lay trail pheromones, chemicals on the ground that they can travel from. And you, and you can take the same, you can take, uh, for example, a major ingredient of a trail pheromone and r- make your name Shane. Mm-hmm. And the ants will run and make the letters S-H-A-N-E, right? Oh, that is fun. And you can do that with termites. You can do it with all manner of insects that rely generally those social communicating insects on trail pheromones, right? And in the case of these army ants, sometimes meteorological conditions don't operate in their direction, and maybe rain sweeps one component of the swarm aside, right? You have these swarm raids. Army ants are amazing. And sometimes you might have some thousands of the ants drift off from the main colony column. Well, how do they find their nest? How do they find their way back? And different insects have different ways of doing so. In this infamous case, it's been shown that these ants will do this spiraling. And normally you'd think, well, you should spiral out to find. (laughs) But in this documented case, they spiraled more and more tightly in and in and in until they died. (laughs) It's a tragedy. It is. And it's amazing that there hasn't... parallels. I know this is exactly uh, that uh, we could find ourselves in this maladaptive yeah. death spiral well at put. any moment. Well put. Um, and uh, one of the reasons I brought it up, but uh, <laughs> but it, it, but you know because evolution hasn't really had a chance to weed this out because you you have a few million individuals uh, get get you know in a death spiral and. You're the making, species survives, the genes go on, that right? sort of thing. You're making but, a beautiful point that oftentimes we think about evolution as something that's already happened. It's a process. It's happening mm-hmm. all the time by different mechanisms, by five different mechanisms. We just typically talk about natural selection. And these are happening in humans today and every species around us, sometimes faster, sometimes slower, some more dramatically, sometimes less dramatically. And that's why... The, term, the bogus term living fossil creeps into the lexicon. And like, for example, the coelacanth, ancient species of fish lineage, and they look a lot like the fossils when they were first discovered and then rediscovered in the 1930s. But hey, they've had 
3.75 billion years to evolve just as we have. And it just so happens that uh, external obvious features haven't dramatically changed as much as they have in our lineage in the same time period. Hmm. What are the five, uh, you said there's five oh, yeah, so, in- influences? Because we, we, we mentioned sexual selection, of course, right. too. We are talking so about non-random who doesn't like a little sexual selection. Yeah, sexual selection. Non-random mating is one. And mm-hmm. some people lump that in with natural selection. Is there but- random mating going on out there? <laughs> the uh, at, actually, at uwl well, i well, bet uh, well, in, you, <laughs> in some of the dorms well you think about random mating what does it mean for wind pollinated plants to end up together right yeah uh, so i see i there, see there can be and i'm sure there are way better examples than that but yeah. there's there's random and there's non-random mating yeah and then there's us uh, of course natural selection and then there's random uh, processes like mutation, just raw mutation, a random change in uh, base pairs in your DNA. Um, then there's genetic drift, also random, mm-hmm. random changes. Like if a, a boot stomps on this part of the pathway and randomly kills a subset of organisms, who survives? Well, maybe it wasn't representative. The relics aren't representative of the source population. Right. right. Yeah. Hmm. And then there's migration. There we go. Yeah. So you've huh. got gene flow. So flow of genes from one population to an, what becomes a new population. Hmm. So evolution is merely, and it is, there are different definitions for it, but really merely is a change in allele frequencies in a population over time. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? That means if you have... Th- 30% of this form of a gene and 70% of the other form of the gene in the population today, maybe tomorrow or in 10 years or 100 years or a million years, you have very different proportions. Maybe it flip-flops and it's 70-30. Hmm. So if you have changes in these allelic frequencies in any population over time, that's evolution. And the, the five mechanisms that alter these frequencies are what make evolution happen. They're the causes of evolution. Hmm. Hmm. All right. We better get to sleep. Sleep. Um, I I have, you know what, before we get, get to sleep, since we're, um, yeah, anyway, this is as good a time as any. I have my guests each week plug a charity of their oh, choice. Yeah. So let's, let's uh, throw a plug out there. There are so many worthwhile charities out there, and it, it's really difficult to pin one that I think would most benefit. And so what I think I'll do is I'll choose probably the most relevant one for today's discussion. Because we're focusing so much on insects as the most diverse lineage of organisms, and because we've talked about sustainability and human-induced destruction of environments, um, because we're thinking about the drivers of ecosystems being small, we need to think about conservation of more than maybe the flashy vertebrates and think about over 97% of described animal life on the planet taking the form of these exoskeleton-bearing invertebrates. And one organization that I think does a really excellent job and has for decades is the Cerces Society, X-E-R-C-E-S. And it's a nonprofit organization that promotes conservation of invertebrates. Hmm. Awesome. That is very fitting. Okay, so 
we have some of these bugs have they're blind some of them have thousands of eyes it what what's the average out there what if whoa average average Man. insect Woo. eye i'm gonna say 200 yeah i'd say a couple hundred that might be an average in terms whoa, of number that was of a wild guess lenses. and i really that's nailed not, it that's not bad a few hundred i'd say okay and then the extremes you get into these dragonflies and some flies that have thousands of omatidia that form these compound eyes hmm Wonderful. And, and usually it involves a use it or lose it phenomenon. So mm. if you need a lot of eye, then you probably evolved a lot of eye. And we just looked at an example in the form of drone male honeybees. So if you look at worker honeybees' eyes, they're pretty big. You've got thousands of omatidia. Uh, queen's eye, big. But the male, the drone's eye, these big wraparound compound eyes almost cover the entire head, that's to visually detect a queen in the air hmm. and that's it that's all you gotta do well because qu the queens are flying up like a quarter mile up in the air or something yeah, like that they're flying high in the air and yes they produce a potent pheromone a chemical mm -hmm. that attracts males from all over and you want to have interbreeding cross-colony exchange of genes so my drone males from this colony will be flying out to find queens from other colonies hmm Mm, so they'll smell the queens and they'll see the queens when they're within a certain vicinity. Hmm. So no eyelids, but you're looking at this thing yeah. and you're like, it's a, how do you know an insect's just not moving and resting? Yeah. Or like, what's the difference between that and Great sleeping? Question. Yeah, because if you've got, like, say, for example, that human is very still. Yeah. Is that human resting, meditating? sleeping in cold torpor or dead or in a coma, right? And all of those mean uh, lack of mobility, right? Mm -hmm. So you need, need to dig deeper, obviously, and certainly for something like an insect. Because we know now we've got a pretty good idea, thanks to flashy term polysomnography, many sleep measures, you can look electrophysiologically at a human or a cat or just about any vertebrate. I mean, there are definitely exceptions that are difficult, like it's hard to put uh, electrodes on a killer whale, but you can detect the electrical impulses in the brain, right? Or eye muscles or chin muscles. And these several sleep measures can help you correlate with behaviors. And the behaviors are key because sleep really is first and foremost a behavior. And if you get sidetracked by the electrophysiological measures, you might lose sight of what sleep is. Likewise, if you get drawn into the behaviors and don't use electrophysiology, maybe you can also be sidetracked or make uh, false positives or false negatives. Well, insects, it's very difficult to use electrodes, microelectrodes, and get a whole lot of information. You can get information certainly from the brain. Nitz et al. had this wonderful study where they had two microelectrodes in the brain of fruit flies, tiny flies, Drosophila melanogaster, and found that they could determine behavior. Listeners, I am, as we were just talking about how I need to be more conscientious <laughs> and on top of things and organized, I forgot to clear my memory card. I don't know why I'm using this smaller memory card anyways instead of this 
gargantuan one that has 60 hours available on it. Had some small memory card in there. We're having this conversation. I was showing off how much I all, I knew about insects. Sleep. I was like, this is great. The audience is getting to hear how smart I am. And I was and, duly impressed. And he was on top of the literature. I was way on top of things. And then I looked down and it... it stopped it we ran out of space so i I had to grab another warning that the the second part of the episode will be 60 hours 60 60 hours long so stay tuned um it's perfect so (laughs) so uh, you're talking so how how do you go about uh where we left off we're talking about the challenges of measuring insect sleep how do you go about measuring such a thing so we really have to rely largely on behavioral measures for sleep in insects. And that's the suite of sleep signs, diagnostic features where we can pinpoint, yeah, that's really a lot like a vertebrate sleeping. These analogs may be homologs in some way to human sleep, for example. And if I look at a honeybee, then I can see a few features, characters that really seem indicative of sleep. It's drooping in the direction of gravity. It's relatively immobile. Maybe there's a little foot or tarsal twitch. Maybe there's an antennal twitch. But by large, they're really immobile, drooping in the direction of gravity. And this is key. They have an increased response threshold. So if you're asleep, it takes a lot to get you roused to respond to a stimulus, like someone pulling on the bed covers or tapping on your hair versus when you're awake, right? You'd respond, you're much more vigilant, more attentive when you're awake. So you have this relative increased or higher response threshold. Also, as discovered by Irene Tobler in Switzerland, there seems to be a need for sleep. And if you lack sleep, then you exhibit a sleep rebound, increased sleep. This is what I sort of knew about or yes, guessed at. That's you right. can just torture these critters. That's you right. give them caffeine. Yeah, exactly. You talked about caffeine and tapping the vial with a fruit fly in it. And that is right on, spot on <laughs> in terms of, well, you give I a just fruit wanted fly. to recap me that's knowing right. something. I didn't, I didn't want that gem to be missed no, at all. It was totally on top of it. And, and this caffeine connection, really interesting. You can give a honeybee caffeine or a fruit fly caffeine. You can give a human caffeine. And these are some of the greatest stimulants out there to keep an organism awake. Uh-huh. Likewise, you can tap that side of the vial in the case of a fruit fly and keep it awake. And if I kept Shane awake all night tonight, you guessed it, the following day slash night, Shane would experience a higher need for sleep, maybe earlier sleep onset, increased duration of sleep, deeper sleep. This is a sleep rebound. Hmm. So if you have this combination of characters, decreased mobility, a specific sleep posture, and lowered muscle tone, and increased response threshold, and a sleep rebound facing sleep loss, namely the sleep is internally controlled, you've got behavioral sleep. And you can see that and measure that in insects. And with over a million described species of insects on the planet, I'd say about a handful have been investigated in any substantial way. So there's a lot of potential for uncovering the mysteries of sleep within invertebrates. Hmm. You can think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, 
To what extent is this shared ancestrally, the features of sleep? To what extent is it convergent evolution? You can think about it ecologically. I sleep this way because of constraints in my environment, pressures in my, my environment. That'll differ between a dolphin and a walking stick insect, right? Uh, you can think about it behaviorally, physiologically. You can think about it at the level of um, genes. So what are the molecular underpinnings of sleep? There are so many different ways. Some have called sleep a hub science, and I think that's an interesting way of looking at it because if you're interested in learning, if you're interested in genetics, if you're interested in biochemistry, you can tackle sleep mm -hmm. in probably really intriguing novel ways. Anything out there that doesn't sleep that we know of? Well, colleagues and friends of mine, John Leskew and Niels Rattenborg from Melbourne, Australia and Zavisen Institute in Germany, respectively, have both addressed that question in really interesting ways in birds. So, for example, there's a sandpiper bird, a shorebird, and during mating season in a particular species, the male seems to be active around the clock for weeks. What's going on there? Normally, you would sleep on a regular circadian basis. But here, no. And it had to do with the trade-offs of mating. Are you going to outcompete the fellow males that are schnoozing, right? And so, at least in that rare question mark occurrence, you have extended periods of no sleep. Not total lack of sleep in the, in the organism or in the species, but at least extended periods of lack of sleep that are driven by, in this case, sexual selection. There are other instances suggestive or indicative of uh, no need for sleep, at least for periods. And Niels Rattenborg has been looking at birds in flight, frigate birds, for example, that can fly for extended periods beyond the wing. Are they sleeping? Are birds that are migrating sleeping at any time? Especially birds that aren't landing, not landing on the water. And it's a really intriguing, complicated story, but it appears that they do acquire some degree of sleep on the wing, at least hmm. in, in the bird he has studied. Hmm. So at this point, if you read your average paper about sleep basic research biology, it'll start out with every animal sleep or sleep is ubiquitous and then follow up with, but we don't know why. Huh? Or it'll go down a track that involves, here's one understanding of why we might sleep. But it really is a contentious issue, which is fascinating because what do we do for an average of a third of our lives? A third of our lives. We don't live very long on this planet. And a third of that time, if you sleep eight hours, which is kind of the average, is spent in this prone position where you're not at least overtly, explicitly, obviously advancing yourself. You're not procuring a mate or food or building shelter. What are you doing? And the answers are emerging as to why it's evolutionarily relevant. Mm. Hmm. So the function-based aspects of sleep are the most intriguing and the most contentious in biology. Hmm. A lot of fights over sleep, I feel like. Yeah. People losing sleep over sleep. 
Absolutely. And the irony is a lot of sleep researchers, myself included, do suffer from sleep deprivation when they conduct their sleep study. <laughs> some, some people are smart and they're able to train, retrain their subjects to sleep during the day. So you can study that sleep behavior during the day. I just came back from Yossi Ovel's lab in Tel Aviv, Israel, and I'm collaborating with him and Rachel Page and Clarice Diebold and Hannah Tilly and others on sleep in bats, specifically two species of fruit-eating bats, one Jamaican, one Egyptian, one in Panama, one in Israel. And in that case, we're asking questions about what it means to sleep in a cluster. And that's a totally open question. Is it thermally related? Does it involve defense? Is it for social bonding? Is it for memory consolidation and learning? And one aspect of sleep that's been advanced, especially from Giulio Tononi and Chiara Sorelli's labs in uh, Madison, involves an idea of synaptic homeostasis. Mm -hmm. So we've got this, if you're thinking about humans, three-pound wonder in our cranium, right? We've got this amazing organ, this brain that can do so much, phenomenally more than we can comprehend, and we're overwhelmed by it, right? Is it that these synapses that we build are unsustainable at a certain point, and we have to slough off some and maintain others? So we have this chronic maintenance throughout our bodies, but particularly in the brains. And is that what sleep is all about? Then there's an idea of the glymphatic system that cleanses, washes out secondary metabolites in the brain, specifically during sleep, at least in mice. So is it energy conservation alone? Is it, and the list goes on. And mm. it's fascinating to see, for example, in humans, how it relates to rapid eye movement sleep versus slow wave sleep, because there are differences functionally, apparently, in those two major forms of sleep. And some of the some of the more exciting work I think is coming out of uh, Bob Stickold's lab in Harvard and um, uh, say Matthew Walker's lab at UC Berkeley, where they're looking at humans sometimes from a psychological standpoint in terms of the benefits of sleep and the costs of sleep loss. Hmm. Well, this was all fantastic. I do. I just started. Uh, realized that I only had a meter for so long in the in the parking lot oh. and i'm like <laughs> i just they it's fan they give you a text alert but they it's do a fancy yeah i got a i got a text alert here wow the city is controlling Look at that. our interview warning your parking expires um so i am going to go um but i want to and i i would just stay and risk getting a ticket but I'd, I'd rather just come back and have you on again sometime soon and talk a little more about sleep and the in, insects' impact on, on cultures and, and uh, maybe a, a little bit of humans' impact on insects and I would all love all of the above. Kind of stuff. I, this was absolutely fantastic. Thank you for the tour and show me around and let me snap some great pictures for Instagram and all that good stuff. You thank were, you for the opportunity, Shane. This has been wonderful. Yeah, thank you. It has been wonderful. And thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people. And we'll talk with you more next week. Entomophilia. What's that? The love of insects. <laughs> <laughs> I almost let that one go. I almost just 
top. And I, I almost, I'm getting better at like not pretending I know something when someone <laughs> throws me a curveball like the that. The best thing a scientist or any humble person can do yeah. is to admit ignorance. Yeah. Because oh. then it advances our own learning. I got all sorts of it. Um, so, yeah. All right. What, so, what's the, the love of insects again? Entomophilia. <laughs> Entomophilia. All right. Well, thank you, Entomophiliacs, for tuning in, and we'll talk with you next week.